Well, ladies and gentlemen, very, very warm welcome to you um, to this very special event, which the LSE European Institute is delighted to be hosting for the launch of a very special online magazine, Utopia, or Utopia, as you like. Um, and we, the LSE, Europe, LSE uh, is very proud to be um, an academic partner of this. Now, this, this evening is an event in two parts. We have the, we have the uh, debate, um, which is about to begin, and that will be followed by a reception uh, to which everybody here is invited, a party, effectively, for, for the launch of uh, Utopia. That will be um, on the fourth floor, or the fifth floor, I beg your pardon, in the senior dining room. So everyone is very welcome. When the, when the discussion ends, be probably at eight or just shortly after eight, if you want to make Make your way up to the fifth floor. That would be very that would be splendid, and you would be extremely welcome. Now you'll be hearing more, of course, about Utopia from its uh, founder and driving spirit, Giuseppe Latazza, seated there at the end in a in a moment. Well, you will have seen from the publicity material, I think, why this is a very special kind of discussion about Europe, because with the help of a very distinguished panel of speakers. Uh, of thinkers will be asking not so much what the EU does and or how it works, um, but also what Europe is and what Europe could be, with or without the help of the existing EU, or maybe a different kind of EU. Well, who can doubt that there are some pretty searching questions to ask about our continent right now? To name but a few, we might ask whether Europe is, uh, is essentially a community of values at the end of the day? Or is it an instrument, an instrument for delivering goods which are beyond the reach of the nation-state in a globalizing world? Is it a narrative, a shared story? Is it the shared territorial space which merchants and scholars have lived since the Middle Ages? later to be enjoyed by many more? And will it continue to be such a shared space? Have we reached the limits of integration and shared sovereignty in a continent of proud nation-states? Have we tested the notion of solidarity beyond a point which is reasonable to expect of different nations and cultures? And what sense does it make to build our ambitions for a better world solely upon the EU rather than on that community of values and interests which is the West? Can we now close the chapter on that bizarre thought experiment of Jürgen Habermas and Jacques Derrida in 2003 with their call for a European identity shaped against its American friends and allies? Well, these are just a few of the existential questions which we might touch on this evening. I will now ask Giuseppe Laterza to tell us about Utopia and why it is the absolute must-read um, that it is. And I will then ask our distinguished speakers one by one to share their, their, their thoughts, and I'll, I'll introduce them one by one as we go along. But now to tell us more uh, about this pioneering project, I will hand over to Giuseppe Laterza, president of the, La of the La Terza Publishing House, which was founded in 1901.
Now, Latere says, I'm sure many of you will know, is truly a name uh, to conjure with in Italian top-end and academic publishing, with world-renowned lists in history, history of art, in philosophy, in literature, and in law, uh, and, and I might add, in, with outstanding production values uh, as well. So without further ado, Giuseppe, would you like to come and tell us why you thought of Utopia? Well, good evening. Thank you very much for coming. Um, uh, we are grateful. I'm grateful to the uh, European Institute of the London School of Economics, and particularly to Maurice Fraser for promoting this uh, very interesting, challenging event. Um, and the, the question, who's the title, What Europe, is exactly the sort of question for which Utopia was, uh, was made, uh, for which Eric Joseph, who's here, I don't see him in the, in the uh, was the editor of a Utopia, French journalist, practically Italian, because he's living in Rome since many years, correspondence of Liberation, and our colleagues did Utopia. What Europe? And I must thank so much uh, Timothy Gartenash, Renaud Dehus, and Jan Sielonka, which are the best possible speakers on the subject for being tonight with us. Um, as you know, and there's a lot of very good colleagues and publishers, book publishers are not, probably not the most influential media um, maker, makers in the short run. Um, um, but La Terza's commitment from the beginning uh, was not so much in the short run. Um, the, the intellectual figure who founded La Terza was a philosopher, an Italian philosopher called Benedetto Croce, who was a liberal intellectual, who um, uh, uh, opposed to fascism during the period between the wars, and who had a strong grip on the, uh, on the choices of the company. Uh, of the publishing house, and always thought and said, and, and with Giovanni La Terza, who's I'm the fourth generation, who was the founder, said, a book is worthwhile if it stays in time. A book is worthwhile if you reprint it, if ideas keep circulating in 10, 20, 30, 40 years. That's the basic uh, thing that makes a book worthwhile. And this attitude, combined with the attitude to think that conflict uh, of ideas is good, and there's no single idea. I mean, um, you, you go, you approach uh, better understanding through conflict. was the same approach that uh, all our influential authors had, also, also after the death of Croce, um, particularly in the European domain, where La Terza tried to work with a number of authors who became, in times, very close friends of the company. And uh, I quote, I just quote two authors, one who's just recently died, who's Jacques Legoff, an extraordinary uh, historian French who, who committed in a co collection called The Making of Europe, which we did with other four companies in projecting together books on the history of Europe, and one which is well known here, which is Ralph Darendorf, who we published from the beginning, from his first very important book on social conflict, and, and, and until the 
the last ones. And, and all, they shared all the ideas that uh, uh, the conflict of ideas, the debate, is crucial for, for understanding and crucial also for action. And this is what we thought with Edition du Seuil in Paris, with Fischer Verlag in, in, in Frankfurt, Editorial Debate in Madrid, when we thought uh, Europe needs uh, a place where ideas would be shared but also will be discussed frankly, openly. Uh, ideas coming from different uh, people with different uh, knowledge, with different disciplines and, I, and, and, and attitude. Um, Ideas which should be shared in a way that every, possibly every uh, European citizen would understand them. I mean, we know that Europe has a lot of very good think tanks um, who are competent on specific subjects, but you know, as the thing goes, when you gather some economists, Italian, French, uh, English, after a while they end up speaking about quantitative easing which is something m most of us uh, don't immediately recognize as a simple or about stress test. Um, I think um, we need these economists to speak with non-economists, with historians, with philosophers in a way that is accessible and which um, could be read. By whom? Well, I could say simply by a motivated public, uh, somebody who wants to know and wants to know more, and um, the, the idea, very simple, is do we need a European public opinion? Do we need a public opinion which is not simply the sum of national? And we, th we fear that there's not enough European public opinion. There's not enough places where people can discuss openly and share uh, ideas. Um, we, we had the luck of finding a, an important a partner, technological partner, which is Telecom Italia. Um, in, in, the next, in the last days, discussing with some of the people of Telecom, he, he said that when we learned a lot working with them, and they learned that people, he said, uh, <clears throat> through Utopia, they learned that people will spend time on text if it is well presented and well written, which is <laughs> something uh, it's interesting. Through the web is not obvious. Um, and we longly discussed the, the subject uh, and, the, and the, the way to treat it. It's divided in three sections. One is on more current issues like immigration or general questions like democracy or actually the fall of the wall, wall of Berlin, the consequence. Uh, there's a part we call speaker's corner or more opinionated text like one Jan Zielonka wrote, for instance, at the beginning about uh, the structure of Europe, and one which is um, we, uh, the columns, where you have more history and cultural identity, because we feel that it's a mistake to disconnect the two parts. We think that Europe has to be discussed, and Maurice Fraser particularly solicited us in this direction, which I think is um, very important. It has to be discussed. You have to discuss current issues starting from um, a discussion about who we are, our past, also the, the, the bad past of our past, the, the conflicts, the intoler intolerance, but also our past has a lot of good ideas. In Europe, uh, people produced uh, interesting ideas for today, and we should uh, discuss them uh, with uh, the idea that even opposite opinion 
um, are interesting to discuss with mutual respect. Um, I think we need very much this discussion, and I think that tonight the, 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 the speakers we have are the best possible ones to do it uh, in the process of um, working together and discussing together openly and frankly uh, on what Europe. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, to open the, the substantive part of the discussion now, a great pleasure in uh, inviting Timothy Garton-Ash, um, who is a professor of European Studies at Oxford uh, University, uh, and he's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Now, it would be hard, I think, to think of, of anyone who has had as much influence and as much readership uh, as a chronicler, as a witness, as a commentator on and an analyst of Europe's transformation over the last 30 years through his many best-selling books, of course, and through his regular syndicated columns um, in the New York Review of Books and in The Garden. We're absolutely delighted um, that he's joined us this evening. Tim, I wonder if you'd like to share a few of your thoughts with us. Thank you very much, Maurice. Can I start interactively? Would you mind uh, a show of hands? Um, first of all, how many people in this room voted in the elections to the European Parliament? Massive, massive, unrepresentative sample, certainly, of the Great British Republic. How many of you watched one, any of the television debates of the so-called Spitzenkandidaten? Wow. Also unrepresentative sample, but quite a small minority. How many of you, when you voted, um, significantly were influenced by the person of the Spitzenkandidat in how you made your choice? So, so please put up your hand if you were significantly influenced by the person, be it Juncker or Schulz or whoever. <laughs> Significantly. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I rest my case. <laughs> um, so there you have, in this extraordinarily well-informed, intelligent, uh, and European audience, an illustration of the problem, which is... Uh, the lack of the European public sphere, the extent to which the economic, political, legal, and other forms of integration have gone way ahead of the actual public sphere, the Öffentlichkeit. Just to give you the figures, in case you wondered, um, just 500,000 people watched any of those TV debates. That's 500,000 out of 500 million people, 340 million eligible voters. Uh, in the United States, the first Obama-Romney uh, debate was watched by 67 million people out of 300 million. We sort of, we know it, but it's just to illustrate it in figures. This is the first reason I think it's fantastic that we have this initiative of Utopia, because anything we can do to develop more of a European public sphere at any level, and a lot of that is going to start online, is worth 
doing, and there isn't enough of it. Um, what our little, um, our little exercise also illustrates is, of course, that we have virtually no European political theatre. The one thing I like to say all Europeans have in common is America. The one soap opera, political soap opera they know is a soap opera in Washington. You just have to say Hillary and they know who you're talking about. There is no political theater of the European institutions. And um, very few people, seven in this distinguished audience, very few people across Europe actually voted for Juncker officials. However, when I tried to point this out in a column published in The Guardian and La Repubblica and El País and a few other places, a storm of outrage came back to me. Lorenzo Binismaghi wrote a riposte in La Repubblica saying, how dare you say this? Um, he said, the choice of Juncker for president of the uh, European Commission was an expression of the popular will. La volontà popolare. Everybody knows this is actually untrue. The leaders of the EPP know this is untrue. They know that actually Juncker emerged, partly because he was a Spitzenkandidat, but also because the leaders of the EPP caucused, and even some of the leaders of the EPP. I spoke to one the other day who said, you know, I didn't actually know till the last minute that it was going to be Juncker, that Juncker was our man. He was a party leader in the EPP. Uh, he said, Merkel and the big guys stitched it up. Right? And yet, we're asked to believe, and indignation flowed on the grounds that this was la volontà popolare. It was an expression of the popular will. Um, uh, this is simply not true, and we have to have a debate if we're going to have a European debate, which is based on realities which people will acknowledge privately, including the, the politicians who are saying these things in public. What is more, I got a terrific blowback of people saying, good Lord, the, the Brits are completely hopeless. We just have to write them off. If Timothy Gartenash and Charles Grant have abandoned us, what hope is there left? There is no hope left. You're absolutely hopeless. And I think myself, I mean, you can agree or disagree with the argument, but that illustrates another problem in the European public sphere, which is we are very little closer, at least in the high-level public debate, to treating each other as Europeans than we were 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, arguably maybe further away, right? Um, we have made Italy, now we need to make Italians. We have made Europe, now we need to make Europeans. Well, there are a lot of Europeans in this room, people who have the lived Europe, but in the political debate, people are very quickly identified with a nationality. And so if I say that in Germany, Someone will say, yeah, das ist eine sehr britische Sicht. And immediately you are, so to speak, ethnically de disqualified, um, courtesy of David Cameron, right? And I think that's, I mean, it's very irritating for me, having spent 40 years of my life mainly not in Britain, writing about Europe and engaged in European matters, but I think it's a larger problem. Um, and, of course, it illustrates yet another problem, which is I think everybody in this room knows that 
the European Union needs very significant reform if it is to survive and prosper for the next 10, 20, 30 years, some of the best reform ideas about the European Union have for years been gestated in Britain, in this city. I think that's a fair case. At LSE, Center for European Reform, something that existed for 16 years, I think that's a fair statement. Intellectually, that mixture of, of distance and engagement, um, I think has generated a lot of good reform ideas, but all these reform ideas are now utterly compromised, tarred with the brush of an agenda of Cameron and his backbenchers and UKIP, which pretends to be an agenda of reform, but is in fact not an agenda of reform. So it's quite a difficult time to be a British European arguing for a reformed European Union because one believes passionately that we still need that European Union for many reasons. Now let me, I don't want to go on too long, so let me just, in conclusion, address three quick questions and give just one answer to each of them and then go into the discussion. The questions which were given to us by our um, um, uh, examiner, Maurice Fraser, are why Europe, where Europe, and what Europe? On why Europe, I just want to say that you probably in your seminars have heard many times that the old argument for Europe, which was the argument about peace, is now has lost its traction, has lost its force, and we must look for new arguments, and then we all come up with the new arguments. Even as we speak, there is war in Europe. Even as we speak, more Russian heavy armor is coming across the frontier of a European country called Ukraine. And it is amazing how little this features, particularly in West and South European debates. You know, the peace argument is not dead and buried and over. Talk to any Central and Eastern European and they will tell you that it remains one of the most powerful arguments for European integration. However, by the same token, talk to a Pole or a Czech or a Hungarian about 50% youth unemployment in Greece or Spain and they will display the same degree of indifference. Again, the lack of a really common European discourse, the indifference of the West Europeans to the fact there is war in Eastern Europe, the indifference of East Europeans to the extraordinary suffering of, caused by youth unemployment and the Eurozone crisis. Morris asked me to say where the final frontier of Europe is in 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> um, Morris, um, not on your life. Um, I, I have learned, I've been in far too many European debates um, to, 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 to ever to specify a frontier of Europe, but there's a very good substantive reason for that, which is that Europe does not end, it merely fades away. It fades away across Russia, it fades away across Turkey, it fades away across the Mediterranean. At some point in some subtle mixture, culturally, historically, geographically, it is less European. What does this mean for the finalité européenne? What does this mean for our debate, what Europe? It means that we are always, even with an enlarged European Union, going to have to think of a complex structure of multiple circles. And it is not 
enough simply to spout the old formula of concentric circles because these circles may be polycentric and the Eurozone may indeed be a magnet but a magnet that repels rather than attracts that divides rather than unites so I just plant that as a second thought finally I'll question what Europe well this is the subject of our debate but I want to turn it round to you and particularly to the younger people in the audience because I can't help noticing forgive me for saying this Morris that there are five white men on the platform most of us possibly the wrong side of 50 dare I say it and I think I think there is a problem in these European debates which is a sort of de haut en bas problem a problem of people who through their whole biographies are committed Europeans saying come on mobilize for the European cause I want to turn it round actually you the younger people in the audience what I call the 89ers are in a sense much more European than us because you're the first generation who've absolutely lived a largely united Europe as a self-evident reality Erasmus generation Eurostar generation EasyJet Europe call it what you will and frankly I think we want to hear from you what Europe we should have and not for us to try and tell you what we think you think uh, this Europe should be where are the 89ers where is the class of 89 that is to say the class of people born in and around 1989 where is their voice uh, on the European project I hear their voice on internet freedom, on Snowden, on sexual orientation, on uh, environmental issues. Where is the voice, your voice, the voice of the anti-niners on what Europe should be? There is, is Henry Radici in the room? There was a wonderful response, maybe he isn't, there was a wonderful response from LSE actually to my appeal for the voice of the 89ers from someone called Henry Radici here at LSE. But I think we want to hear from you. Ernest Renan said, a nation is a plebiscite de tous les jours. So is the European Union. And if your generation does not want it, it will not last. Thank you very much. Thank you very much uh, indeed, um, Tim. Um, We'll meet our next speaker is Renaud Douce. And uh, Renaud is one of Europe's leading political scientists. Full stop. Point final. <laughs> um, you didn't have to take it from me because uh, I'm sure you know it already. He holds a Jean Monnet chair in European Union law and political science at, uh, at the LSE's sister institution in France, uh, Sciences Po, where he directs the Centre d'Etudes Européennes, uh, which is the partner of our own European Institute, which I have the privilege of heading, so in always in a sense my counterpart. Now, he's been a professor at the University of Pisa, at the European University Institute in Florence. Uh, he's a visiting professor at the University of Lausanne, 
and at the College of Europe in Bruges, and has held visiting positions in several European and American universities. Um, he's also very involved in the world of policy through the Notre Hoc think tank, and in uh, to participation in several high-level groups for um, on the reform of uh, European institutions that have been set up by the European Commission, the French government, and so on. So, um, Renaud, we look forward to the thoughts which you have, which you're about to share with us. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Maurice, uh, first for your invitation and then for this uh, kind introduction. It's actually uh, not uh, an easy task to uh, speak right after Tim Garton Ash. Uh, but I'll, uh, I'll do my best perhaps to, not to repeat what he said, but uh, perhaps uh, uh, suggest alternative ways of looking at a number of points uh, he mentioned. Um, in fairness, we know that uh, it's very brave of you to have come tonight because uh, it's easy to be a bit depressed uh, when one talks about Europe these days. I mean, if you read the books that are written about uh, Europe, European integration, uh, you can't be, uh, let's say, uh, uh, too surprised by the avalanche of fairly uh, gloomy titles. Of course, I say this in the presence of Jean Zilonka, who's uh, actually committed uh, one such book, uh, Is uh, Europe Doomed? But he was a pioneer, uh, followed by people like uh, François Beau in France, uh, L'Europe, La Dernière Chance, Valéry Giscard d'Estaing uh, was his title. Uh, his um, title was, I think, La fin du rêve européen. Then in Germany, you had people, uh, distinguished uh, academics like uh, Klaus Offer or Wolfgang Streich, each in their own way, uh, stressing how dramatic the European uh, situation. Um, so I say it's quite brave of you to have come and uh, accepted to engage in a discussion on a topic which is not necessarily the most funny uh, uh, these days. Uh, it's true that uh, not so long ago, two years ago, uh, we were even wondering whether uh, there would still be a thing called uh, the European Union. Uh, because the euro, the euro was said to be on the verge of collapsing, and it, it was also said that it would trigger a kind of chain reaction that would ultimately lead to the, the dismantling of the European Union. We also witnessed in that period a remarkable display of a lack of solidarity uh, among European countries, uh, which certainly has not uh, reinforced uh, uh, the ties uh, between uh, the peoples uh, of Europe. Um, Europe, in a large number of countries, has become synonymous for uh, very severe uh, austerity policies and, uh, well, near unsustainable social hardship. So one wonders, uh, uh, where can this lead us? I accept this uh, fairly gloomy picture, and yet I, what I want to say very briefly tonight is that this is not the whole story. There are other elements that deserve to be mentioned and that perhaps convey, uh, I won't say a, a more rosy picture because that would be too bold of me, but simply a less dramatic uh, picture of the situation. Things have happened 
which according to me demonstrate uh, that uh, the uh, the old idea of uh, bringing uh, the European countries together is not dead yet. Uh, I know uh, that uh, let's say this is not the most uh, uh, let's say commonplace view of the situation and yet if you think of uh, uh, the events uh, and the developments of the last uh, two three years uh, you can't uh, uh, help but notice that important changes took place let me just mention two which I think are crucial one is uh, the fact that for all the distaste one may uh, have for uh, transfers of sovereignty, not exactly popular an idea uh, these days, uh, what one has witnessed in recent years in uh, among the countries of the Eurozone is a massive transfer of authority to the European level in order to uh, protect, uh, some would say, save uh, the, the common currency. Nowadays, uh, member countries of the Eurozone must really accept uh, their uh, fiscal policy to be very closely scrutinized uh, by uh, the Brussels authorities. Of course, uh, it does not create, uh, uh, let's say, much enthusiasm, uh, neither in the peoples nor uh, among uh, those who govern those countries. Yet, it takes place. Um, likewise, uh, they have transferred, uh, as of the 1st of November of this year, uh, to the European Central Bank, uh, another supranational authority, uh, the power to uh, control the European banking system. Now, no one is going to fall in love uh, with either the, the European Central Bank or a banking policy. And indeed, this is not sufficient to create a, a nation, uh, as we heard a, a minute ago. Yet, let me ask you a simple question. Uh, if, it is, if it was so unpopular, why did the heads of state and governments of the countries concerned decide to go along that road? Turkeys don't vote for Christmas, and yet, yet they have willingly uh, accepted it, even those who campaigned forcefully against the, the very idea of transfer of uh, uh, controlled powers to uh, the Brussels Authority, uh, uh, as uh, François Hollande in France eventually uh, came to accept that uh, it was necessary uh, in order to preserve what there was. And really, we know it's not that the Greeks fell in love with the Germans or vice versa. Uh, th there is not uh, uh, a great sense of community, uh, as Tim Garton Nash uh, pointed out uh, uh, quite uh, uh, aptly a, a while ago. Fair enough. Yet, it has been decided by the governments, accepted by the parliament, and it is happening. Because it is happening, it does already trigger uh, reactions on the political plane. You do, see, of course, reactions which are not exactly uh, reactions of enthusiasm about uh, what goes on uh, at the, in terms of economic uh, policy within Europe. Uh, 
you have more people uh, demonstrating against uh, the Brussels consensus than you have people uh, uh, supporting it. Fair enough. Yet, it, this creates, in its own uh, peculiar way, a sense of community uh, among the, the people concerned. If you listen to the people from Syriza in Greece or Podemos in Spain, uh, they are not Eurosceptics a la Nigel Farage. Of course, they're very strongly Eurocritical, but perhaps because uh, uh, they belong to a generation which is not exactly the 1989 generation, but uh, is certainly uh, younger than uh, that of the politicians in power uh, these days in Europe, they do not want to go uh, to, to, let's say, uh, do away uh, with Europe altogether. They want, so they say, a different Europe. So. All I wish to suggest uh, is not that everything is going fine, but simply that we are witnessing a political and social dynamic that may in itself be constitutive of a Europeanization process. And I move on very quickly to my second important innovation, which happens to be uh, uh, Tim Gartenash's uh, starting point, namely the question of the Spitzen uh, Candidate. And now, to be brief, I'd say uh, we probably agree on the analysis uh, of what took place uh, in, uh, uh, in the spring of this year. I'm not sure we agree on the importance uh, of what has happened. It's fair to say that not much has changed on election day because of the existence of candidates to uh, the top job in Brussels. Indeed, uh, I've had uh, last week a, a very fine analysis uh, produced by uh, uh, Sarah Hobold uh, from LSE suggesting that there was, uh, uh, in uh, some respect, uh, let's say, uh, uh, movement in the sense that uh, the system created incentives for greater participation, but to a limited extent, I would suggest. I'm not saying uh, that it changed things radically. I'm not suggesting that Mr. Juncker is indeed the byproduct of some popular will. That would be uh, far-fetched. Indeed, no one, including myself, uh, thought uh, the system uh, would work. Uh, and it was even rumored that Juncker himself was not a direct candidate for that position, that he was there because he wanted another one more comfortable, that of uh, chairman of the uh, European Council. But that, I think, misses the important point. What the real change is not the change that actually did not take place in the heads of voters. Because we know that such changes take time. When you change the uh, electoral law, it does not work on the first occasion. It takes a while be before it gets in the minds of people. But I tell you, what has changed is what goes on in the European Council. And this is the big difference. Nobody, and I repeat, including myself, would have accepted to uh, bet much on uh, Jean-Claude Juncker. Yet, he made it. Why? 
because somehow this idea that uh, someone was to be was to be uh, let's say uh, even indirectly uh, uh, blessed by uh, universal suffrage uh, appeared to be uh, such an irresistible idea that no one in the uh, in the European Council was able to come up with an alternative and convince uh, his or her partners of the wisdom of that course. What's even more remarkable is that thanks to the big impulse of David Cameron, uh, they decided to take a vote, which is an unprecedented move in a, in a club where normally decisions are taken by consensus. What I would like to uh, suggest is that this changes the nature of the game. It will. It hasn't yet. It will change the nature of the game. Because precisely next time people will take the exercise much more seriously. Not merely you and I, but European leaders, political parties, both uh, in, uh, in their respective countries and at the European level, I would be willing this time to bet that they will uh, consider the matter much more seriously, that you will have a different kind of candidates, that the media will not be in the position to simply uh, uh, decide that they would not air the debates because there's a football game uh, or, or that kind of stuff. So it's not happened, but things have changed. Gradually, they can change. This is the way things happen at the European level. You do not have uh, a Bastille day or that kind of uh, overnight uh, revolution. It takes place gradually. It focuses on boring uh, uh, topics uh, which do not elicit much interest. But one step after the others, uh, it, it does uh, keep uh, the integration process in motion. Of course, it invites resistance. Yeah, but a resistance of the kind, I would submit, that may end up consolidating the project rather than uh, tearing it apart. So uh, all this to say I'm not, while recognizing that this is a difficult period, that uh, certainly there is no excess of enthusiasm for the European cause, I would say it's a bit premature to announce its uh, demise. Eppure si muove, as Galileo Galileo, from a city which is uh, very uh, dear to my heart, once said, I would say just the same about Europe. Thank you. Well, thank you for our second very spirited intervention from our panel. Thank you very much. Now, uh, we come to our third speaker, Jan Zilonka. And Jan Zulanka is Professor of European Politics at uh, Oxford University, where he's also a Darendorf Fellow at uh, St. Anthony's College. He has, he has a rare ability uh, to paint the European subcontinent on a broad canvas, to stand back and, uh, and to tell us uh, what is really going on among, amongst, amidst so many forces of integration and of disintegration. His very original and historically rich account of Europe as empire, as he famously put it, as a benign, rambling, and expanding post-medieval constellation of overlapping jurisdictions has been highly influential. In fact, it's an idea also evoked by um, 
by Tim when he talked about Europe as a complex structure of multiple circles, and maybe that's the best way to think about it. Well, Jan um, has also been suggested, never afraid uh, of the big questions, his most recent book, to which Renault has just referred, uh, Is the EU Doomed? Well, uh, a story to be continued, no doubt, maybe even this evening, but uh, best in his own words, I think. So, um, Jan, if you would like to come to the lectern and give us your thoughts as well. Thank you, Maurice. Um, thank you for hosting us all here, and, uh, and thank you to the La Terza family, those of us who are familiar with the Italian publishing scene, this is a very special publishing house. They are not just interested in profits, they are also interested in ideas. Well, you can say a dying species, but we should be grateful to them. And, and you can say utopian in a way, so the, the title is, is appropriate. But you see, I live in different countries in different years, and I learned that, that certain terms have different meanings. For Thomas More, utopia was an ideal community. In romantic Poland, where I'd grown up, to be utopian was a compliment. But then I moved to Calvinist Holland, where utopian was rather an insult. You know, utopian, you just don't know what the real life is about. And, uh, and it's, it's very difficult also to talk about Europe, uh, you know, in those terms. Because if you live in the medieval city of Florence, where Renault and myself were living for some time, Europe is a symbol of cultural, scientific glory. But if you go back to Poland, it's a symbol of war and holocaust. But you see, I don't think it's legitimate to identify Europe with the EU. You know, we usually use those terms as synonyms. Whatever will happen with the EU, Europe will exist in its various manifestations, political, cultural, geographic. Whether you will survive, I don't know. I have to uh, confess, these were my publishers, chiefly responsible for my titles. <laughs> when, when, when I wrote this, um, you know, a, a book about enlargement, and I s was flirting with the idea of medieval Europe, Empire was there too, but maybe not so strong. My publisher said, well, I want to have a Google-friendly title. <laughs> well, he was right. <laughs> With the last title, I just was asked to write a book on this title. <laughs> so, I, you know, sometimes I would like to take a credit for, for punchy title, but the answer is important. The answer is important because, you know, <sighs> If we are not in trouble after all this, what we read in newspapers over the last five years, what it takes to, to, to have a crisis in Europe? I wouldn't know. And I remember even when, when the draft of European Constitution sank, you know, immediately supporters said, no, 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 everything is on course. 
you will be fine with Lisbon Treaty. You see, those, we don't know what will happen tomorrow. I'm not astrologer, so I cannot tell you that. But, and we never know whether uh, certain problems will just pass away or, or will get worse, and with which results. The problem with the U.S. Sages, and, I, and when I tried to answer this question, was that, in my view, today it hampers integration rather than generates it. And this is a big problem for those who are friends of, of Europe as a community of equals who want to work together. I mean, I'm the last one who would believe that you can just take the toys and go to your nation states and run Europe like it was in the 19th century. But if you believe that we are highly integrated in the independent continent, and we are doomed to work together in one way or another, we have to ask ourselves, do we get value for the money? And if this doesn't work, what is the plan B? And if the plan B if, is what Renault, uh, my good friend and colleague, has described just, you know, that we got... Uh, you know, uh, support for Mr. Juncker, despite him being a symbol of tax evasion, which is not only <laughs> recent news, you know, I've seen it in newspapers several years ago already, you know, that we have, have reduced sovereignty of country when Federer and his Greeks put up with that. And what they could do at the time? Well, if this is what is going to make us support the project, then I fear the opinion polls which show the declining you know, percentage of people trusting the union. We will end up not only with countries like this one, or maybe Spain and the Podemos, or Greece and the Syria are leaving the union, we will also end up maybe with Mrs. Le Pen running France, Mr. Wilders winning elections in Holland, Kaczynski in Poland, and take it. And it will not just be EU as a problem, it will be, the, it will be Europe as such, going back to its bad habits. And I think we deserve better. We deserve better, because at the end of the day, the problem not, Tim was 100% right, that we have no public sphere. But we, the EU was supposed to be good on efficiency. Okay, it never was very democratic, it never, you know, it never was uh, communicating well, it was but it was supposed to deliver goods. Well, what kind of goods it's delivering today? You remember Lisbon Agenda? We're supposed to surpass America by 2010. You remember Helsinki headline goals? We were supposed to have 60,000 soldiers on the EU flag. What are they? 
Look at the European elections. What were the issues which people care about in Poland or Ukraine? What has the EU done about Ukraine? In the north of Europe, here immigration. Not only in the north, in the south too. Go to Lampedusa. What has the EU done to help coping with the immigration? In southern Europe, the debt problem. You can even say it created the problem to some extent. I mean, this is a reality test. And what we are getting? We should celebrate because we elected Junkers. <laughs> now, the problem is not that I know how to save Europe and the EU. I don't. I do my best. <laughs> but we are not supposed to have this discussion. Because those who screw it, they tell us that there is no alternative, that we have to stick to do what we have. And I think it's wrong. And I think that those who really care about Europe and those who do not want xenophobes and populists to, get a, 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 to run us have to organize themselves and start debating this. My proposals, and here I finish, it's very simple. I think, first of all, you should, if you want to integrate, you should abandon monopoly of states for running European integration. They are the gatekeepers. They are, you know, uh, uh, giving, treating EU and European integration as a, as a low-cost airline. No money and flying to the other part of the world. It doesn't work this way. They are not giving you any resources or responsibility. Second, we should finish this idea that we are, you know, building a European territorial state, replacing nation states, which is, which is contradiction in terms, because those nation states are never going to commit suicide and to transfer all sovereignty to, to the EU. We should simply do what Leszek Kowalkowski once called it, let's move to the, forward to the rear. Did I translate it? Let's correctly, Tim, from Polish? Proszę się cofnąć do przodu. Exactly. We should simply put a more emphasis of functional integration rather than territorial one. We're not going to be the territorial state here, but we could simply devolve power not to states, but to functional agencies. And we should also put more emphasis of a structure which doesn't look like a pyramid, but which looks, you know, like horizontal networks. And to have more pluralistic way of governing this union. There are various ways to integrate. And let's have a debate about this. Because there is no, you know, I have a feeling that the major problem of the EU today is not demographic deficit. It's not even efficiency, you know, which is lacking in these days in coping with problems which people care about. It's the lack of imagination. We are unable to reform ourselves, and we even prevent there any discussion because in this particular country, 
You cannot really be against you because then you are a friend of Farage. Well, we can do better. Well, um, Jan, thank you for inserting quite so much grit into our oyster. That's a tremendous amount of uh, food for thought there, if I can mix metaphors. Thank you for uh, your spirited intervention. And I think, um, I think our panellists have got us off to a cracking start. Now, we've got some time to... The whole idea and the spirit of this evening of, uh, of uh, really entering, venturing into uncharted waters, which is part of this exciting intellectual journey which Utopia is, is um, taking us along in the spirit of this evening. Now I'm going to open up the discussion. Um, please um, indicate if you would like uh, to be called, if you would like to ask a question. Say who you are. Please wait for the roving microphone to be brought to you. And please keep it short and sweet as a philosophical kind of discussion will, will permit. But it will be a test of brevity and clarity, if ever there was one. Um, I will propose to take questions one by one. I don't think um, that the sort of questions that we're, we're dealing with this evening are ones which actually uh, are, are best sort of clustered and grouped into three or four, which is, works in some form, it's not this one. So without further ado, um, there is a gentleman there who's very... And then I will, I will try to get round the theatre. Yeah. My name is Bernard Casey from the University of Warwick and the European Institute. <clears throat> the word theatre was mentioned very often today. I think what we're talking about is black comedy. Um, I think one of the reasons why we might be talking about black comedy, this is an election, a by-election in this country in a couple of days' time. The person who's going to win is called Reckless. He comes from a party whose number two is called Nuttall. We've heard about Mr. Junkers and how he got the job. Why did Junkers come onto the job market in the first place? Because he had to resign as Prime Minister of Luxembourg because of a scandal with the Luxembourg Spy Service. Whoever heard that Luxembourg had an intelligence service? Remember that. Um, we come further. We heard a few days ago about Hollande telling Cameron that he had to play by the rules. This was the same time that, that Hollande was saying, we're not going to, rep we're going, not going to re respect the Maastricht um, fiscal governance rules. Um, we then have to think, and we heard about the young people, the generation of 89. I don't actually see very many of them in this hall at all. Actually, I see an awful lot of white um, elderly males, of which I am probably one more. Where are the young people? I'd suggest that they're actually at home watching YouTube, and they're watching on YouTube Farage versus Van Rompuy in the European Parliament. That was the best show on town. This is actually a fairly sick joke. I'm a good European. I wonder how many people agree with me. My question is, do you agree that it's actually rather a bad joke? Okay, should we have a poll? How many people agree? <laughs> I think that's one. The young people are behind you. 
And in the, and up there, they're waving now. <laughs> Absolutely. There Can I respond quickly? Yes, go on, Tim. Um, yeah. I, I, I do agree with you that the name Mark Reckless is a gift to the satirist, reckless by name and reckless by nature, and I know him. That's about the only thing I agree with you on. Um, look, I think it's absolutely... F I think it's actually a good thing we are having a fundamental debate in Britain about the basic question in or out. Do we want to be in this thing or not? I think that's a good thing. Um, and not being confronted with the utterly dishonest position, which is you can have your cake and eat it. You can have Europe a la carte, you can pick and choose, you can have all the benefits of membership, but none of the uh, burdens of belonging to the club. So I actually think it is not a bad thing that we have all this black comedy you're talking about, and I think if the Conservatives win a majority at the next election, or at least form a government as a minority, we will have a referendum, and I will take a bet with anyone in this room that when push comes to shove, the British people will vote to stay in, okay. not to get out. Absolutely. Good. Thank you. Does, uh, were, was, were Professor Casey's did they, thoughts uh, occasion any other comments? And yeah, if not, I'd like to get through as many, bring as much or encourage as much audience participation uh, as, as possible. Uh, so, um, yes, the lady in the green, in the green shirt, top, uh, sorry, it's, it's just coming. It's just coming. Hold on. There we are. Yeah. Please. Uh, my name is uh, Maria Spirova. I'm a Bulgarian journalist and an 89er, 89er more or less. Um, and um, I uh, heard all of the distinguished speakers um, sort of threading a little theme um, in their expose about the responsibility. Uh, or the role of the national states in what's going on with Europe and the idea of the EU at the moment. Um, and exactly the transfer of authority and the play of narratives the national states have done on EU, I think, is a big part of the problem. When the years were fat, obviously the national governments liked EU and talked motivatingly about the EU to their peoples. Now, they can outsource all of the resp responsibilities and problems into, oh, EU is bringing this austerity to us. I think governments and national states have been quite, well, ambivalent and duplicitous in their message to their peoples about the EU. Um, how do we change this? Because they've been, well, using and abusing alternatively, what the EU stands for and what its values are. Thank you. Anyone like to answer that question? If not, we can take it as a, as an, as a, as a, as a substantive and interesting freestanding statement in its own right, which we will absorb. So, um, and I will, if you'll forgive me, then I will press on, take some more, take some more questions or, or points, as I say. Uh, please keep them short, short and sweet. Sorry, yes. Um, yes, there's the lady, yes, there in the white shirt towards the front. Thank you. 
Hi, I'm Martha Luczynski. I'm from Germany, uh, currently at the German Embassy here as an intern. I am wondering one thing. Professor Ash pointed out that we have a problem with nationalities um, being more important to us than the European identity. Myself, studying in Germany and in Poland and up in, uh, in Scotland and in Edinburgh, I only saw one problem when it came to nationalities, which was British people referring to me as European and um, you know, as them not being European. Last week when you, we had the um, European Court of Justice decision, here in London a newspaper called it a European court, which for me is the question, why would we say that this is a nationality problem altogether when for me personally it seems like it's more of a, of a British problem? Thank you. Anyone would like to comment on that? Right. Okay, um, who else? We'll collect a few in there. Sorry? Well, the, yes, yeah, some of these questions are actually being collected and um, we'll actually receive uh, a response uh, later on. So don't give up if they don't elicit immediate uh, response from the panel. Uh, yes, the lady, um, the lady, that's right, yeah. Um, hello, my name is Virginia Brown, and I've been teaching EU law in Turkey for the last 30 years, so I've watched the EU fairly carefully. Um, nobody here tonight mentioned uh, sort of outside forces that may have had some effect on the maybe wrong turn that Europe has taken and created some problems, um, specifically perhaps um, uh, an unoriginal response to 9-11, um, to the 2008 banking crisis, and most recently to the TTIP, which I think doesn't really offer Europe anything very desirable, um, especially since it's quite secret. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't address my question to anyone in particular, but do you think part of these problems come from um, external relations and aren't internally generated entirely? Thank you. Thank you. Is that a stored question? Yeah. Stored answer? Yes. Okay. Um, right. Let's 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 crack on. Um, Sorry. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Somebody or somebody? Upstairs. Gentlemen upstairs. Yeah. Up there. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. We'll come back down. Uh, yes. Okay. Um, I'm Italian and I live in London for. I've been in London the last ten years and. Um, uh, I've been impressed about the speech uh, of the professor, but what I was wondering about European Union is that I realize that in many countries, European countries like Italy or maybe Greek or other countries, there is a lot of legal problem in terms of justice, in terms of uh, uh, to, to follow the rules that the European gives to, to the, the, the other country. But at the end of the day, the European citizen of this Southern European country, they don't have any guarantee from the Euro from Euro Parliament that they are going to, to, to push this country to follow the rules or to make justice more efficient, all this kind of stuff. So my question is why European Union doesn't try to be more tough in order to, to push the, the European government of this South European country to be more efficient and more, can I say, uh, to more, more equal for all the citizens. Otherwise, all the people feel the, the need to, to move to Switzerland or to UK, where there is a more civilized environment. May, may I say something? Yes, please. Um, there's, there's a word which has been used, which I think is, is wonderful, by Professor Zielonka, which is imagination. 
I don't think Europe needs guarantees so much. It needs imagination. It needs to be taken not just as this thing, this is a table and it's a table, but something that we can draw together through discussion. Uh, my daughter Antonia just recently went to a seminar near Berlin of a, something called European Alternatives, where about 70 associations made uh, Timothy on the whole by 89ers, mostly 89ers, discussed of Europe. We don't know about them. We know very little about them. Television doesn't speak about them, but they exist. And it's true that Utopia has a big problem, male, old, um, white. But we will try to do our best to make imagination be the flavor, because I think history is worthwhile if we imagine something new. And history gives us a lot about welfare, who was invented here, for instance, speaking about solidarity. Uh, maybe not by a chance we don't have death penalty in Europe. We have an idea of exchange and having immigrants uh, Europe has always been a land of exchanges. So I think this is why we called utopia, not by a chance. And I think when you speak about guarantees, it's very, it's very uh, right to speak about and ask, but they must come out from uh, imagination through debate, through a strong debate about what Europe, not so much yes or no, but the thing we must vote for, the thing was we must work for, has to be something which we must imagine not just take it as it is, I think. Thank you, Giuseppe. Um, and Tim, you'd like to come in at this Well, point? just briefly, because there are a lot of questions crowding up. And first of all, if you think nobody's been pushing South European countries, ask someone in Greece uh, if they've been being pushed or not. I think you'd find they felt slightly differently. What hasn't been pushed is France. Um, and that is, in a way, the point, that smaller, weaker countries are pushed in the way bigger, more central countries are not. To the German lady up there who asked the question, I mean, I know what you mean. It must be jolly annoying, but, you know, it really isn't only Brits who blame things on Europe, you know. There are an awful lot of places around Europe where the government goes out of the latest summit in Brussels and briefs their national media and trumpets their national success and blames what's wrong on Europe, I can assure you. The difference is, the difference is that there are very few people in Britain who would speak as Giuseppe Laterza has just done, who would speak about Europe as this beautiful, inspiring idea, right? less and less people in Britain. Whereas, and here, Renaud, I mean, I absolutely agree with you, why does Greece and Spain take this incredible pain and not say we're out of it? Because we believe in Europe. This is where we want to be. Coot que coot, we want to be in Europe. And being in Europe means staying in the Eurozone. And it, this attitude, which is very, very strong also in Jan's native land, Poland, it was wonderfully summed up by a Polish economist at a meeting between British and Polish economists. And the British economists were very brilliantly explaining everything that was wrong with the Eurozone, all its design flaws and how it couldn't possibly work. And then the Polish economist said, you don't understand. We want to be on board the European ship, even if it's sinking. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a kind of belief in the European idea, which is still there. But if it's only that imagination, only that idea, and not a Europe that's delivering, then the ship isn't going to keep sailing for another 20 years. 
But isn't it, uh, isn't it the case that all the peoples of Europe are making a cost-benefit be- cost analysis of what membership entails? And when Renault mentioned Syriza, Syriza in Greece and Podemos in Spain as uh, parties of popular protest, anti-elite parties which were nevertheless pro-EU, well, it's surely not a coincidence that both of those countries are substantial net beneficiaries in the EU budget, not net contributors. It would be interesting to see, to, can one imagine an anti-elite party of popular protest in a country which is a net contributor? Uh, yes, um, I think uh, uh, it was, uh, well, and, and, you know, I don't know whether that... Uh, well, that occasions any thought. Surely the fact of uh, that knowing which side your bread is buttered is... is uh, and, and actually, and then making a pretty down-to-earth, pragmatic, as I suspect the British will do in 2017, uh, when they will vote for, EU member, for continued EU membership, because we are famously pragmatic, are we not? In other words, we vote with our pockets. And isn't that actually the driving force behind most people's perception of the European project and whether it's working for them or whether it's not? No. <laughs> I fundamentally disagree. I think what Giuseppe and I are both saying, and I'd like to hear Jan and Renaud on this, is that actually you know, my Greek bread, if I'm a young Greek, has been pretty thinly buttered for the last few years. I think you'd agree. And yet I still want to stay there. I still want to stay in this thing. And Poland has exactly the same attitude because I've been driven to the periphery of European affairs for the last 400 years. And now we have the chance to be at the heart of this great project, which is Europe. And a certain idealism, a belief, a myth, if you like, actually prevails over your you know, pragmatic Manchester butcher, bread and butter (laughs) thinking. So I don't think that is right. But but what I do think is, and I'd like to hear the other panelists, what I do think is if Europe um, doesn't deliver at some point the goods that it has delivered very substantially in living memory, then it's in bigger trouble. Thank you. Um, You wanted to say something? Yes, I, I think Tim is absolutely right that in, Eng, in, in Great Britain, or should I say England more specifically, the, you, you don't take European identity for granted. I mean, Greeks may not like the European Commission or, or, or the, the German um, uh, bank to tell them what to do, but they would never question that they are European. Um, so I think this is a big difference, and, 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 and therefore this discussion is so kind of mixed, because people mix European identity in this country with the EU, and it's all becoming complicated. Now, I don't share fully what, what, what Tim said about this polls eager to, to jump on the sinking ship. I mean, yes, some of them share this romantic vision. You know, Polish history is full of the symbolism of, of, of losing battles. <laughs> but uh, I think when they talk about the euro, they think about joining the decision-making table. And, 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 and they believe that, you know, economics uh, maybe is here less important. But, of course, those who know anything about economics in Poland 
warned that uh, they made up end up not like Germany but like Greece or Portugal. So uh, if they don't prepare an economic side to joining, but you see here I will have to be careful because Poland is a country, the only country where opinion polls are without any hesitation, very pro-European. <coughs> but I live now in Warsaw in these weeks, and when Prime Minister was going to the last European summit, all parties said veto regulations on environment. Poland has to veto, and Europe is not going to tell us how much you know, uh, uh, CO2 we're going to break every day. And there was no any, there was no any, any dissonance here. Nobody mentioned, well, maybe it's not so good to, to have this air so polluted by the coal. And uh, no, it was a national pride to veto arrangements on the European level. So, and this is exactly the problem with many of, of those countries, and no, of these governments, you know, that they, are very much pro-European as long as it suits them. <laughs> and when it doesn't suit them, they are not so European. And here we were talking about theaters. I think we are, uh, in, during this crisis, and I write about this book, the, the, there were three theaters who were totally separate. There was political theater, which is only in nation states. This is where, you know, uh, the show goes on because this is all in common language, the, the, the actors and the script is very national and hardly anybody from outside understand this uh, or even know protagonists. Do you know who is prime minister in, of Latvia today or, or Slovenia or, or Cyprus? And you wouldn't understand even the, 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 the whole game plan. But this is where decisions are, political decisions are being made. Then you have, you had the global theaters, which was not national, where protagonists were not national politicians, but were global markets, multinational in most of these cases, and, and basically with little regard what is going on in the political domain, because those markets today don't have to worry about democratic constraints, and it was in the past. And then there was this EU theater, where those heads of states of governments were going to, to, to Brussels, uh, trying to get the best deal for their countries, but in the end they had to also compromise with the markets, which basically run their scare from day to another. And they, what they could do, they could agree on a treaty, which most of the countries which agreed to the treaty were not even intending to implement fully. The very moment they signed the fiscal compact, basically uh, uh, both creditor countries and debtor countries said, no, this is really not what we signed to. And those three theaters were never connected. And this is the big problem of Europe, that um, the model of integration with God doesn't connect those, those, those political words, economic and, and European ones, and we have to find a different way of doing those things, because for the short time, now we are in the crisis, we are dick in the hole, we want to survive, right? 
But how long you can sit in the hole? Okay. On that note, Jan, thank you. Uh, We've got just a few more minutes before, um, uh, before you're invited to go upstairs to, to the reception. Um, I'd like to ask uh, the editor of Utopia, Eric Joseph, who's sitting there, to, um, uh, to, to put the question which he has uh, signaled he would like to put, or make the statement he'd like to put. Um, Eric, please, yes. Uh, good evening, and thank you very much for this opportunity to, to discuss about, uh, about Europe and uh, about Utopia, because the purpose, the aim of Utopia is exactly that kind of discussion we've got this evening. It's to think, uh, to, to create a kind of uh, a virtual uh, agora uh, about Europe and to, 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 to face that kind of, of questions. I just would, would like to just to, to say a very uh, few words about our last issues, which is about uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, 25 years uh, later. And um, uh, it has been the, the, the opportunity to, to focus um, about the, the expectation of 1989 and, uh, and the outcome. And it's quite shocking to, uh, to, to see, to, to look, how uh, intellectual and political uh, elite uh, leaderships were bad prepared to such event, uh, in particular uh, f uh, towards Russia. And um, I think that now Europe has to face uh, very huge uh, challenges, uh, economic challenges, uh, demographic challenges. If we, if we think, for instance, that um, now uh, UK, like France, like Italy, represents less than 1% of the world population. Technology is uh, challenge. So we have really radical uh, changes. And so the question is how to, how to face that, uh, that, uh, that changes. And uh, the, the, uh, the purpose uh, the, of Utopia is that kind of, of questions that you want to, uh, to deal with. And so thank you very much to, to, to host. And uh, my question will be very short um, <laughs> after this introduction. Uh, do you? Do you think that we really need a change of institution? I think that uh, Timothy Gartenhash uh, speak about that. Now it's quite a question that we are not able to discuss in France. But uh, do you think that the priority is an institutional reform? Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Um, if I may, I'm just going to take two more, uh, two more questions. Um, um, and then we'll have to draw things to a close. Uh, yes. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, thank you. Um, I'm not sure if I can speak for anti-nighters because I was a kid at the time and then I grew up uh, throughout the 90s and witnessed uh, some interesting developments in Eastern Europe which are, I think, quite informative for the present EU's condition. But I want to ask uh, particularly Andy Longa about his ideas on or prescriptions for Europe because it sounds to me that they lack imag imagination in one important respect because what you say is that we need to abandon the state and instead of that we need to have uh, this network of agencies, functional agencies, so as Europe can deliver on efficiency and that's what uh, we expect from Europe in the spirit of this cost-benefit analysis. 
But I think what's perhaps to me more problematic is this lack of collective agency people feel in Europe. And you can see it throughout the Eastern Europe now when they celebrate their anniversaries of the famous 1989. And it's not that people resigned on politics, but it's just they don't know how to take decisions together so as they mean something. And in fact, the prescriptions you have is that let's leave it to experts, to agencies, and uh, they will deliver for you. And then we can debate it. But debating is not really a political agency which would mean something for people. And Europe made nations and states um, responsible for wars and atrocities of what Europe was learned uh, from. But uh, we didn't invent something instead of that to have uh, this kind of agency we need. So that's, well, I don't know if it's a question or a comment, rather. Okay, Thanks. I'll throw one more question into the pot and then give a panellist a chance to, uh, to, to reply. And it's time to move upstairs, I think. Yes, gentlemen, is putting in a lot of elbow grease into climb, I think. <laughs> yes, your perseverance will be rewarded. Um, yeah, please. Okay. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, sweet, please. Yes, I am uh, from Albania, a country which is uh, has Greece on border and Italy close by. So we're surrounded by Europe, but we're not in the EU yet. And uh, my question would be, uh, in pursuit of this reforming of Europe, would uh, expansion fit in your agenda at all? Uh, or do you think Europe needs to tidy its sort of like home first before thinking of expanding into other countries, uh, namely Balkans, uh, that are not in the EU yet. And one thing that I'd like to add is that if uh, Professor Ash would come to Albania and hold a lecture, I can almost guarantee him that 90% of the audience would be 89ers, and you could count on them to vote and everything else. <laughs> Our panel, please, Renaud. To Quick remarks. I mean, the first one is to say that we've had an amazing diversity of uh, uh, topics raised in this uh, discussion, and I think we touched upon the key elements, uh, namely identity, the role of the state, uh, and benefits, whatever these are. I mean, it's much more than the economy. Uh, uh, why should we be doing all that? Uh, now, I'm not going to address each of these points, but uh, this provides me with a, uh, an easy answer to Rekios' uh, question, namely, uh, institutions are not central in this business. Institutions are just an instrument. They're, they can be a very powerful instrument. Uh, normally, uh, when they are, uh, it is not anticipated. The Spitzenkandidaten were not... Who invented that? <laughs> who invented the idea of the Spitzenkandidaten? Some say it's Martin Schulz. It's true that Schulz was very brave at uh, exploiting an opportunity that was enshrined not in the Lisbon but in the Maastricht Treaty. It's as old as that. And it simply took 20 years to materialize. So uh, simply said, I would say... As far as institutions are concerned, I would recommend we concentrate on uh, exploiting the potential of what uh, kind of institutions we already have, because it takes a lot of political energy to basically disagree on institutional topics. So uh, let's concentrate on the key uh, issues that were uh, raised uh, tonight. Identity. Uh, the politics of identity in a large 
pan-continental uh, ensemble, uh, such as that of, uh, uh, of Europe. That's, of course, a, a tremendously difficult question uh, because, for one thing, it, it's constantly misunderstood as a kind of binary question. Are we either uh, citizens of our own country or uh, European citizens? There is no future if you ask the question that way. Uh, we must, by definition, be a bit of both, and possibly much more than that. Uh, citizens of our, uh, uh, of our local community, member of our uh, football club, what have you, all these elements, in, uh, key ingredients in modern identities uh, need to be mobilized, but together, not one against the other. And certainly it's not uh, by playing one against the other that we will make sense of what is, I think, fundamentally innovative in the uh, this somewhat uh, strange construction that is attempted in Europe. That is to say, not an attempt at creating a, super, a European super state, but at bringing together various national communities, uh, some of which do insist quite a lot on uh, retaining their distinctiveness in a, a common uh, uh, in a common political system that will uh, bring them a, a certain number of benefits. If, if you can't uh, solve that kind of uh, tension, uh, you, you're not going to make uh, much uh, progress. Now, uh, at the same time, I think it's important to understand that. Uh, uh, I don't mean to suggest that uh, European integration is primarily about uh, uh, the economy. It's never been the case from the outset. I mean, though it was described as functional integration, it was first and foremost political. But of course, we all, uh, thank God we don't all look at the EU budget, uh, because a, uh, uh, it's uh, impossible to make sense of, like any budget, by the way, Right? Huh? Uh, budget is an instrument of political communication. Yeah. Uh, don't you misunderstand it as a true image of uh, what actually goes on? Whatever the institution you look at, I mean, think uh, way beyond the EU. Um, but clearly, uh, the, the, the European economic integration is much more than merely a question of budget. There are many things that do not uh, uh, translate in, into a pure budgetary calculation. But we all have somehow a utilitarian component in the way we approach those questions. We expect uh, integration also to be a source of benefits for ourselves and for future generations. And, and that is why, at the end of... This is why uh, we must also gauge uh, the quality of the integration on the kind of benefits it is able to produce. And, and finally, uh, be able to express uh, our evaluation through uh, the, the ballot box, so to say. And, and this is why it, it gets important, I think, to, uh, to take more on board the, the, the views of citizens, whatever the institutional engineering that is uh, offered, uh, in order to um, enable us to, as, a, as citizens of that larger community, have an impact over its uh, policy choices. It's as simple as that uh, at the end of the day. Thank you. Well, 
Ladies and gentlemen, I think that, uh, I think hopefully we can all agree that we'd, this has been an extraordinarily rich uh, debate um, uh, this, this evening. Um, I have encountered rather what, what I expected, the sort of certain degree of pessimism, certainly a lot of disquiet, and, uh, and uh, that ceaseless striving towards a better place which, uh, which one sees in discussions about Europe and which perhaps most Europeans are feeling at the moment. And I would only suggest this may be a little bit too lyrical for some people's taste, but I think there's, I think there's something uh, in it because I think that we shouldn't overlook the, the extraordinary continent that we have the privilege of, of living in and its many, many treasures, most of them are, which remain undiscovered uh, to us. And, uh, and I said maybe a bit too lyrical, some people's taste, but I think there's something in it. I'm reminded of one of my favourite poets, um, most quoted lines, and uh, it was T.S. Eliot, when he said, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And I think there's, I think there's something in, it, in, in that. Let's enjoy our continent, and, uh, as well as criticise it and try to make it, make it better. Um, I hope you will all, in the light of this stimulating discussion we've had this evening, I hope you will turn to the online pages of Utopia. Um, and may, may I say something, Maurice? Please. We have it. two new partners, which I would Please, proudly announce... Please this evening. One is the Centre d'études européennes de Sciences Po, and the other one is the Wissenschaft Centrum of Berlin. So we're very happy that also the network is expanding. Sorry for interrupting, but it, I thought it was good, a good occasion excellent, excellent news. To, to say. Excellent news. And it will also be excellent news to see as many of you as possible upstairs on the fifth floor uh, for the party. Um, bear in mind, those of you who are not familiar with the LSE's lift system, that uh, you can reread War and Peace in the time it takes for a lift to come and take you upstairs. So those of you energetic enough, do think of taking the stairs up to the fifth floor where food and drink awaits you. Thank you.